Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. All right, everybody. As we said in the last episode, we ended up splitting this month, August 1963, into two episodes. So let's go ahead and resume right away with the second half of August 1963. Okay, let's go ahead and jump to Tales of Suspense number 44. I would say an excellent book, super thrills, super action, super suspense as a fighting mad Iron Man battles the legions of the mad Pharaoh. However, if there's one thing that this issue tells us, it's that it is hard to spell Pharaoh because they (laughs) spell it wrong every time. Oh, do they? I hadn't even (laughs) noticed. (laughs) This is also in the no prize book. Ah. So uh, this was an issue where I'm like, oh, good, another no prize book. Yes, uh, not how you spell Pharaoh. Two two things to to say. I know it's your turn to take this story, but uh, two things I'll say before you get started. One, I know that I am usually the Don Heck cheerleader in all of this stuff. This is the first Don Heck drawn issue that we've had so far that really does seem like this is like I'm not necessarily as excited to be seeing this particular Don Heck art. I don't know. I like this issue. Of course you do, because it, we're, we're like Siskel and Ebert over here. But it just seems I like hex art in this issue. It's it seems the inking seems really rushed to me. Um, yeah, and, I would agree. Yeah, um, but then the the other thing I wanted to point out is that, and we get a, a preview of this on the splash page, but we'll see more of it in the story later. The whole thing where he's rolling on casters through the desert uh, reminds me of the scene in Star Wars where R two D two is rolling through the deserts of Tatooine, and you're just like. Wait, how does that work? Like, there's little wheels on the sand? Is that? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the, the, the Iron Man wheeling himself around on casters would be really stupid if he was fighting somebody, you know, on a parquet floor. It's so much dumber <laughs> in the desert. And and they're big fans of it. Heck and Lee are big fans of this because they're leading with it. They're like, hey, before you start reading this story, don't worry. There will be Iron Man lying like a plank, wheeling himself around on casters before this story is over. We're going to jump ahead and make that promise to you before we actually start this story. And I don't think that this is as much of a value add as they think it is. <laughs> but yes, so... This story is absolutely crazy. There had been a movie called Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton that had come out around this time and had, more importantly, had a tremendous amount of promotion that had been going on for years as the movie went further and further over budget. So it was a big deal. It was a big news story. And they decided to cash in here. So I didn't mention on the cover, he is carrying Cleopatra, who could not be more thrilled to be in his arms. And it says, see Iron Man dare to rescue Cleopatra, Siren of the Nile. We then see her again, flashing forward on the page. And we then cut to the story that, so I like this art. I think that this is, that Heck, I always like him more when he's penciling and inking himself. We see Tony Stark arrive in Egypt to help with an archaeological dig. And occasionally Heck will do these very heavily inked moments, like at the bottom of page two, where um, you see Tony's face. And I really like it a lot. We see Tony... Once again, pretending to be part of high society, you know, watching a belly dancer in the Casbah. Um, I guess Casbah is the wrong city, but in the uh, Attic Cairo night spot. But then, of course, he has to go plug himself in. And he, <laughs> once again, going to ludicrous extremes, trying to protect his secret identity. I, I don't think that Stanley ever really got the hang of secret identities. He's always like, you know, he would just set up these situations where it just made no sense to have a secret identity. Like, just tell everybody you're Iron Man, dude, which, of course, he eventually would. And no mistake in the movies, they got to him realizing he had to just tell everyone he's Iron Man as quickly as possible because it makes no damn sense without it. But so then <laughs> he shows up at the ecological dig as Tony Stark says, oh, you need Iron Man. I will now leave so that Iron Man can come. Then Iron Man comes and help them dig their way into the archaeological site. And then Iron Man says, I will now leave so that Tony Stark can come back, which he does. <laughs> and then Tony Stark comes back and, but whoops, they found a mummy in the archaeological dig. The mummy, of course, disappears and then shows up in Tony's tent that night. And he is now a walking, talking pharaoh guy. Um, he It's the same as the painting of King Hatep on the sarcophagus. Correct, Stark. I am Hatap, the mummy they are seeking, but nobody carried me off. I simply walked out of the sarcophagus. And 
it turns out he has the world's craziest plan that he was fighting Cleopatra, decided, I know what to do. I will fake my own death with Cleopatra, take a serum that will allow me to appear to be dead. I will then have her embalm me. And boy, when you're just pretending to be dead, you do not want to get embalmed, but that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and and turn him into a mummy. Now, of course, the mummification process involved putting a hook in through your nose and ripping your brains out. It involved all kinds of stuff. Again, yeah. the... You know, between reading this and doing this thing, I just happened to run across some kind of a news thing about some sort of scientific stuff they were doing to some Egyptian mummy. And they were like, oh, wow. So in this particular case, they didn't take out his brains. Isn't that interesting? And I was like, (laughs) it's this guy. (laughs) guy. (laughs) But then he reveals he was fighting Cleopatra. And it's like, I want to defeat Cleopatra. So first, I'll let her kill me. I'll pretend to be dead. I'll have her mummify me. I'll lay in the tomb as a mummy for 2,000 years. And once I arrive in the future, the first thing I'm going to want to do is go back in the past with my time travel device. Like, well, you were already in the past, dude. Why didn't you just stay there? Why didn't you just defeat Cleopatra when you were actually there fighting her in the first place instead of faking your own death? playing in the tomb for 200,000 years, and then instantly going back in time to continue finding Cleopatra. Especially if you have a time a time machine of some sort. You know, it's like... <laughs> you would think there are all sorts of ways that time machine could help him in this fight, except for how he actually uses it. Yeah, you know, he's so dumb with how he uses time travel, I'd almost think he's Kang. Yes, or... <laughs> uh, Dunwoody, idiot time traveler from 1909, uh, from the Tom the Dancing Bug. Not familiar with that one. <laughs> okay, Percival Dunwoody, idiot time traveler from 1909, is a continuing uh, character in the Tom the Dancing Bug cartoon, which is awesome. So uh, this issue is potentially script art burns, penciling and inking Don Heck. Um, we have classic example of the scripter not approving of the art, which tends to happen in the Marvel method because they feel the need to point out when they then go back in time by writing a chariot back through time, a chariot which has never seen before or since, uh, carried by carried by three horses. Then the scripter, who I guess is Robert Bernstein, feels compelled to point out, have Iron Man think while he's going back in time. Amazing. I know I'm under some occult hypnotic spell. We are traveling in time through Hatap's power of magic as he conjures up a vision of a non-existent chariot. So that explains how this chariot did not exist before but, or after. But the thing is, that thing in in his hand right before they do the traveling in time looks like the little chariot. I mean, it just seems to me that it's like, oh, yes, here's the magic chariot. And then we will somehow magically now be in this currently miniature chariot and travel through time in it. That, that seems to just make total sense to me. But, you know. Uh, what you gonna do? The scripter felt the need to point out that this was all non-existent. It's just a metaphor, folks, he seems to be saying. So then they go back in time, they get separated, Iron Man puts on his stuff, and then here's where I really love the art on this issue, because Iron Man then flies off to go find Cleopatra, finds that Cleopatra is in an Egyptian palace being besieged by the Romans, and it is awesome. It is awesome watching these Roman army and siege engines. Like, this is the sort of stuff that comic book artists hate like okay so then on page four panel four of page eight uh there's a massive roman army besieging an egyptian city with siege engines anyway so in page in panel six it's like right, wait, right. wait 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 what, what do you that, want me to that's draw? like famously one of those things where comic book artists are like they see that kind of, it's like the writers like oh and then this happens and the penciler's just like oh my god <laughs> but heck goes all out he yes. iron man wrecks the siege engines he takes the red hot missiles from their hands he throws them to blow up some ships he it is just a beautiful sequence of iron man fighting the hell out of the romans and really destroying them yeah over the course of several pages and then then he sees a roman galley attacking and he swims through and smashes it from the bottom cleopatra is like who is this guy who is helping us out he is awesome he she calls iron man back to be with her throws herself at him of course oh noble stranger i will grant you anything any wish if you would rid egypt of that evil pretender to my throne and he is thinking to himself, good grief, she's even more beautiful than history claims. Now, if you have ever seen the coins we have from Cleopatra's time, you'll realize she wasn't that pretty. But anyway. <laughs> well, I guess by today's standards. But um, uh, it reminds me of, and I pulled this thing up, a, a little thing I've seen going around on the internet a little while ago, about a little uh, back and forth saying, Cleopatra, I commanded an army against my brother. Historians. 
Cleopatra was sexy. <laughs> Cleopatra. Egypt was stable and prosperous under my rule. Historians, so sexy. Cleopatra, <laughs> I spoke nine languages. Historians, S-E-X-Y. <laughs> so that was definitely going through my head as I was reading this issue. <laughs> yes. So then he agrees to work for Cleopatra. Seemingly, this is all because he enjoyed the Elizabeth Taylor movie. Um, <laughs> why else would he suddenly take the side of the people of color against the white people, which is not generally how it works in these 1960s Marvel comics. Although, of course, Cleopatra not exactly portrayed as a person of color in either the Elizabeth Taylor movies or this comics. Well, so then, of, well of course, uh, it was all it, Mediterranean. They probably all looked like similarly swarthy. And uh, Cleopatra was actually Greek. Right. But she was Greek on her father's side. She was, <laughs> she was but, presumably yes. had, had quite a lot of Native African ancestry on her mother's side. Um, so then she, so then Iron Man then says, wait, Cleopatra, I'm going to go defeat King Hattip for you because I'm going to put casters on myself and roll across the desert and smash into him, which is one of the dumbest things you'll ever see Iron Man do. He defeats Hattip, Hattip trips and falls on his own sword. How ironic to fall on one of his own weapons. I suspect that this was censored a little bit uh, because of fear of the Comics Code Authority. The way yeah. that they sort of describe him falling on his sword, but you don't, act, you know, so you see in panel two on page 13 that he's sort of falling towards the sword and then you don't see the sword on the next panel where he's like, you know, essentially falling on it. I am guessing that it was originally much more clear that the sword was pointing up and just about to impale him there, that they were like, eh, you know what? I don't think the CCA is going to go for that. So um, let's go ahead and, and nix that. But that's just a guess on my part, just based on looking at the panels that I see here. But I just figured I'd throw that out. Yes. And then Cleopatra says, I, Cleopatra, have lost my heart to you. But he goes ahead and goes back to the present. And then there's a fun panel where... Tony Stark is examining the two women. There's a clear hieroglyphic of Cleopatra <laughs> hugging Iron Man. And it and the Egyptologist is like, here's one hieroglyphic drawing as mysterious as the money's disappearance itself. It shows Cleopatra embracing a golden armored figure. And Tony Stark just gets that little grin people get in Marvel Comics. And he says, oh, but that's a tough one to figure out. Then, of course, Tony Stark, just in case we hadn't figured out this all has to do with the movie, he goes to the premiere of the movie and they go like, do you think you could have made an impression on Cleopatra if you had both lived at the same time? He thinks, he says, why not, old boy? After all, stranger things have happened. Thanks, and that's for sure. And that's the end. So you are saying that this is your this is your first issue where you're starting to see problems with Heck. I love this issue. I think that I have no problem with Heck in this issue at all. And you know me, I am not a Heck fan. Right. I, I just, um something about his inking just is, it's fine. But this is sort of the direction that he's going to end up going in going forward, where I tend to not like his stuff as much as we go forward, just because this sort of scratchy looking, almost like Coletta inking looking kind of look to him is something that we're going to see more and more over the coming months uh, before they basically just have other people ink him eventually. And, you know, I've really just been exceptional, just been very much charmed by all of his work. Uh, that we've seen up until now. And uh, this is where I really see it start to come come apart a little bit. I mean, I still like the art in this issue, but I can just sort of see the beginnings of that, of uh, the foundation coming out. Yeah, I'm also going to like him on Amazon and the Moss this week. So I, I think heck is a good month. Okay, but I think this is a very fun issue. I am a big fan of this issue. I think it is a hoot and a half. I think it is big visual excitement that we get to see and it makes no sense whatsoever. Like, why on <laughs> earth did this guy ever even go to the present? Why did he fake his death? Why did he do all this? Makes no sense. But the result is a fun issue. So who cares? Yes, uh, I, I think that's fine. Oh, and also uh, on the cover, you were talking about Cleopatra couldn't look happier to be uh, in, in Iron Man's arms. Uh, is it just me or does Cleopatra's face right there look a little bit like Fida Barra? who actually had been a star of a silent Cleopatra film, which is one of the more famous missing films of the silent era. I almost sort of wonder if Kirby had like seen that back in the day. <laughs> you know, was picturing Theta Barra as Cleopatra. 
That's entirely possible. All right. So we're now going to move on to Tales to Astonish, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. So on the cover, we see that we're going to be seeing a Cyclops. We see them in peril. And again, this this has the same sort of inking thing that I'm talking about here, especially on the splash page. It's a, like, a lot of scribbly looking stuff on here. So it's funny. It, it, it's I, I find it really uh, surprising and odd that, you know, at the point when I'm like, eh, OK, you know what, Matt, you're starting, you know, he's starting to lose me. Don't worry. You're like, oh, no, this is where he gets good. I'm sure we will quickly find heck that we can both dislike equally. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of sad because I liked liking him. We start out with Ant-Man and the Wasp getting around in the city in a way that doesn't really make any sense. Wasp is able to fly, but Ant-Man has to be catapulted, but he really seems to be swooping around in various ways. Here. Yes, this is, just, this is the Hulk all over again where he it would be fine as long as they didn't show him in a little line swooping up from the ground in a way that you can't do when you've been shot out of a cannon. Right, right, right. Uh, but then they still have him land on the pile of ants. So clearly he's not actually flying. Yes. Anyway, so but we, we once again still get to see the ant elevator and the antipult and all sorts of stuff. But then he spends lots of time like working on it and making sure that it's working right and, you know, cleaning it and checking it. And then by the time he comes in, uh, you know, comes back into the uh, full size office, Jan is quite miffed that he has taken so long to come and spend some time with. So at some point, he then says, hey, you know what? We're getting kind of cranky with each other. Let's go on a vacation. Uh, now, this is one thing where it always sort of gets me or I mean, I and I know this is for kids, but there's the whole thing of like, so they're vacationing together, right? So are they living together? Is this, uh, you know, like. What kind of relationship stage is this? You know, because it's like, hey, let's go off for a weekend to Greece. You know, that's you know, that's not just like, hey, we're business partners. <laughs> They're getting separate rooms. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so anyway, they uh, they go to Greece and. Um, they're going to try to get a little cruise out to the islands and uh, everybody's like, oh, no, 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 we're not going out to the islands anymore. You know, it's, uh, it's too dangerous. And so they say that there's some kind of sort of monster that's been seen. So then uh, she's miffed that she doesn't get her little pleasure cruise. And uh, then Hank is going to go and try to find out some information. They go to a radio operator. So he's able to get give him his boat. He's like, yeah, I'm not using my boat. You can go ahead and use it. Then he says, oh, and by the way, once you pay me for the boat, I have the money in my hands. Now I'll mention to you that the last sound heard from the most recent ill-fated dis disappeared ship just before the radio went dead was the word Cyclops. Just that one word, then silence. But I have your money now, so have fun yes. on your cruise. So I gotta say, I'm loving Hex Art here in on page four when they go to Greece. He's really having a fun time showing Greece yes. as a vacation destination. Again, Henry and Janet look like fashion plates. They look very fashionable. I like Janet's kicky little headband and mm -hmm. i really like on page five page five panel five uh, where you saw the way you were operator in the foreground and janet and hank in the background i was like who does this remind me of i'm like this looks like alex toth or yeah toth yes however it's pronounced I, I i had that same thought at various points in this issue was that it looks like alex toth um and yeah yeah you're right um i i will agree with you on that yeah i think that he is i'm 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 really liking his line work in this issue. And I'm, you know, and again, just as he really rose to the task of illustrating the Roman attack on Egypt, he's also risen to the task of doing Greece as a vacation destination and these little seaside towns. So uh, then Hank, so they're there, you know, uh, Jan was was looking for more adventure in life anyway. And that was part of the whole thing about going on this vacation. But then when it turns out there's superheroing to be done, she's just like, no, this is awesome. You know, let's go ahead and tear it up. You know, I just I just don't want to be bored. Let's go ahead and, uh, and do this stuff. And then at one point, Hank is uh, as they're getting ready to go and find this cyclops says well we'll soon know my little eager beaver <laughs> okay uh cyclops is from the greek mythology kyklos meaning circle and ops meaning i and did it and keeps on going on about all this stuff and she says i'll change into my costume before you decide to give me a test professor so we have a little bit of mansplaining going on here and him getting called on it which is uh, uh kind of nice uh, i think is actually very much in character for both of them 
Yes. And so they reach the island where the Cyclops has been terrorizing folks. Oh, and then meanwhile, they actually mention that the flying ants are a species of driver ants. And I went and looked it up, and indeed, driver ants are one of these species of ants that actually do have flying adults, which mm-hmm. they did their research on this. However, uh, I'm pretty sure I, in that thing it said there that driver ants do not exist in Greece. But, um, oh. you know. <laughs> you brought some with them. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, but I was like, okay, you know what? For this whole thing, is rare thing of flying ants, really? They went and looked it up and said, okay, they're driver ants. So anyway, they get to the island and the Cyclops attacks their boat, picks the boat up and carries it on land. So they escape from the boat. The Cyclops is carrying the boat inland and they find that the Cyclops has this whole big pen where they're keeping prisoner all of the sailors who have been disappeared. But then it turns out that it is not the Cyclops keeping these things. There are aliens, and the aliens are controlling the Cyclops as a robot. So this is a giant robot, which is being mentally controlled by these aliens. And as usual, they're just, uh, you know, hoping to uh, have their invasion of Earth. And this is just their first uh, uh, step of the whole thing. Um, a very elaborate first step. I like the I like the look of these aliens. I think they look very distinct and original. They're not little bug-eyed green guys. They look very interesting and weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, de- I mean, definitely armored. So I don't know if we know what they would actually look like inside there. But in terms of how they present to us yeah certainly they don't look like your usual uh bug-eyed you know wrinkly chinned um <laughs> big-eared yes. uh you know sort of uh I- i'm describing scrolls scrolls as well yeah however we then see that once again jan suddenly still has her needle back again yes and her needle from last issue which she does not have in any panel in which she is not using it but she does have in every panel in which she is using it and she and so hank has is- his lasso and Hank has his lasso, so it is obvious I wish that Hank just travels with a massive lasso, I guess, attached to his belt at all times, and Jan travels with a giant stinger that she occasionally has in her hands and occasionally is nowhere to be seen. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, they are able to wreck a little bit of havoc with the aliens, but they want to go ahead and disrupt their whole plan. So Jan stays with the captives and Ant-Man flies one of his flying ants into the mouth of the Cyclops and he tries to hunt for the Cyclops's brain. And we're going to get to something neat there in a minute. But meanwhile, we go back to uh, Jan is, is able to communicate with some wasps and she's now able to get a wasp army to follow her. Uh, do we see this again at any point in the future? Not really. I don't, I don't It seems like something that, I mean, you know, as much as Ant-Man having his army of ants help him, you know, it's like having a swarm of wasps is a whole other level, you know? Yeah. So anyway, the Cyclops is then attacking because the aliens are like, okay, this isn't going to work. We just need to kill the captives and then disappear. So they send the Cyclops to go and kill the captives. Uh, Ant-Man, meanwhile, is going through the, like, uh, mechanical brain for the Cyclops. And one thing this reminds me of actually is about 10 years from now, or maybe it's a little less than that, uh, when we have the Kree Scroll War, and there's that whole issue of Ant-Man going through the Vision's body. Yes, it did remind me of that. Yeah, yeah. And so this this seems like a foreshadowing of that in some ways. So at the last minute, uh Ant-Man is finally able to uh change the frequency of the robot's brain so that he can now control it using his own cybernetic helmet. And uh it's right at the moment that the Cyclops is about to kill the captives. Jan certainly seems scared, but then she later uh, explains, you know, no, I I was just trying to help the other people. Yes, I knew I could shrink and save myself at any point, but I'm a superhero here. I'm trying to make sure that these people aren't going to die. And I think uh, uh, Ant-Man's a little bit like, oh, yeah, sure. Good good, good story, little lady. Um, And uh, which is a little unfair. So then uh, Ant-Man sets the controls for the Cyclops robot so that it just walks out into the ocean and sinks, uh, supposedly to rust and die. In the end, they finally get back to the U.S. Jan says, in the future, let us have no more vacations. I just can't stand the excitement. But she's smiling and he's smiling back. Clearly a very flirtatious uh, interaction that she is very yes. happy that this boring, stodgy scientist was able to give her this thrilling vacation that was almost too much for her. 
And I mean, one of the things I just always, I just always love Janet Van Dyne's character. And I always love how game she is, how much yeah. she is just someone who really enjoys being a superhero. And really, you know, they did a great job. Probably my all time favorite version of Janet was on Avengers Earth Minus Heroes, the cartoon. Mm-hmm. And they really did a good job contrasting her and Hank on that show where Hank was the, just not an enthusiastic superhero. And she was, and it made her all the more appealing. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone out there in podcast land who has not watched the Earth's Mightiest Heroes animated show, it is really excellent. The animation is fine. Nothing to write home about. I would call it excellent, but okay. When I saw it, it wasn't like, oh, well, I'm watching this for the fantastic animation. Right. That's what what I mean. That's what I mean. So it's serviceable. It gets the job done. It's but I like it a lot more than I like it a lot more than the animation on what if. Okay. either way, they they each have their strengths and weaknesses as far as I'm concerned. But my point is that just the storytelling that they do in uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes is really excellent. And in some ways, and I think, Matt, you have described this at various points as one of the rough drafts for the MCU uh, in terms of how how they're going to be taking the sprawling universe that is marvel and turning it into some kind of coherent intermingled story that you're telling um yeah i feel like you really have a story with four drafts draft number one is the jack lee steve stories of the 1960s draft number two is the ultimate comics draft number three is avengers of my heroes and then finally it culminates in draft number four which is the marvel cinematic universe yeah yeah, um, but I, I could go on about the, uh, the Earth's Mightiest Heroes, but we we that's not what we're here for right now. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll have a tangent into that at some point in the future. But right now, we need to get to our final issue that we are doing in this particular episode, whether or not it was actually published this month, which is Fantastic Four Annual Number One, which yes. is this is this is a this is a feast. This is a feast. So yes, <laughs> yes, let's go ahead and do it. We can't put it off any further. Let's do Fantastic Four Annual Number 1, it just dated 1963. One of the things they liked about these annuals was that they could stay on the newsstand for longer because they weren't tied into the current continuity. One thing it just would be true for many, many years in the annuals is you're never quite sure where it slots into continuity because they wanted these things to be able to stay on the shelves for a long time. And this is a big issue. It costs more than twice as much as a normal issue of Fantastic Four. Normal issue of Fantastic Four costs 12 cents. This costs 25 cents. But boy, oh boy, are they giving you a lot of value. On the cover, we see the Submariner in his red trunks again, which we haven't seen since issue six, and we don't see again in this issue, we see him on a spectacular throne with a spectacular helmet. He's got the Fantastic Four trapped in a little bubble. It says, at last, Submariner finds his long-lost race, and so begins the most fantastic battle of all time. Inside the pages of this, the world's greatest comic magazine, which is not exaggerating. This is quite an issue. We then see that they brag about how Spider-Man will be in this book, not in that story, in a different story, and there'll be a gallery of villains. We then get to not one, but three splash pages, which just could not be more spectacular. This is written by Stanley, drawn by Jack Kirby, inking by Dick Ayers. You have disparaged Ayers inking sometimes. I think his inking is especially fine on this annual. Does not look like it was inked with a mop. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I'm I'm kind of uh, seen as being uneven. He's not my favorite inker, but sometimes his inking can be quite nice. Uh, like, I, as you pointed out, sometimes it looks like he's inking with a mop. Uh, I don't really see that this time. No. I think that he is doing a fine job here. I mean, you know, nothing that Sinat wouldn't have improved, but, you know, still doing a no, fine job. No, no, no. He's no Sinat. But uh, I would have absolutely loved to see this issue inked by Sinat instead of Sinat drawing <laughs> that <laughs> utterly inane issue of Thor. But uh, so then we begin with a uh, guy is blowing into a huge trumpet to announce that Submariner has been reunited with his people. He is now leading Atlantis once again. We see him riding to his throne on the backs of two giant turtles that he has harnesses on. And then we see him address his people. He has an even more awesome throne than he has on the cover. We see him with an absolutely spectacular throne and crown. He is waving to his people. We now meet two other main characters. We see that he has been reunited with his long-lost fiance Dorma. She is very happy to have him back. She says, oh, hail, mighty Namor. Hail, Prince of Submariners. Great Neptune himself has led thee to us. Everybody is greeting him. But now we see on the next page that Dorba is meeting with Krang, who is one of the warlords. And all Dorma can talk about is Namor. She's like, at last, at last, 
my loved one has returned to me. And Krang's like, what words do you utter, my lady Dorma? Have you forgotten your vow? You are pledged to become the bride of warlord Krang. And she says, no, you cannot hold me to that now, for Namor has returned. My true love has come back. So uh, then Krang is not at all happy about this. He says, if Namor had not returned, both Dorma and the crown might have been mine, but there are still ways. So I'm always a fan in Lee's comics when you have uh, well, I should, I guess, say Lee and Kirby's comics. It's almost always in Kirby comics where you've got some sort of fantastic realm in which the various people are plotting against each other and being split up into triangles and plotting against each other, which you certainly have here. Right. So they're, they're not they're not just a monolithic group of like we're all the same kind of evil and we're all working from the same playbook. But no, they are all backstabbing each other in various ways. Yes, you have a full spectrum of good and evil within every culture, which is, I yes. think, always indicates a certain sophistication of storytelling that not every writer has, but Stanley certainly has. And so then we cut to the Fantastic Four. Johnny is blowing air through a heat vent to make Ben uncomfortable. Ben realizes what's going on, takes out a giant hose, tries to hose down Johnny, ruins all of Sue's designer gowns. Turns out that she has been spending quite a bit of money she says, my clothes, my expensive Dior and Saks Fifth Avenue dresses ruined. Look at them. And Reed's like, don't sue. I'll make it up to you. And she's like, you can't read. They were all original, exclusive creations. Men, you're all beasts. So turns out, I suspect if we check out her credit card bill, we'll find out that she <laughs> gotten herself in a bit of trouble. And of course, we know that Reed is not very good at managing his own finances either. So <laughs> well established, <laughs> well established. But then so we have our second story in a row this month where and I, I never am a big fan of this trope of like, hey, everybody, let's all go on a vacation together. God knows there's no chance that we'll run into a supervillain while we're all on vacation together. Now, to be fair, this time they know it's quite likely because he's saying that there have been, let's all go on a cruise together, but there have been reports of sea monsters. We get an absolutely gorgeous panel in the middle of page eight of a submarine with a huge sea monster looming over it. Well, and this is this is not the first sea monster we've seen. In the scene in Atlantis, there was a huge sea monster like monumental sculpture that's part of the sort of amphitheater that they're in there, which is uh, also just a fantastic sea serpent looking design there. So yeah, Kirby's just really going to town there. And I will reiterate that it was always my assumption that it was Jack Kirby going off to do this big, massive chunk of work that caused the Kirby apocalypse, as you called it a few months ago that, you know, I think he was working on this for a while and he took off from some of his other books uh, to make time for this. Now, I don't know if the timing really works out or for that or not, but that's, that's my supposition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting, like in the 1980s, Marvel started reprinting some of their best work of the sixties and seventies in these beautiful new heavy white paper format. And they did a year's worth of Doctor Strange, and they did a lot of Jim Starlin stuff, and they did lots of Neil Adams stuff, but they never did any Kirby stuff. They never said, this Kirby stuff deserves to be reprinted, except for just one issue of Kirby was the only one that ever got reprinted in this fancy new archival format, and that was this issue, which they were very much clearly saying was the ultimate Lee Kirby issue, was the one Lee Kirby issue that really deserved to be gorgeously reprinted. In the 1980s. And if you want to say, what's the one Lee Kirby issue that deserves to go in the time capsule? It might be this issue. It is a really gorgeous issue. Yeah, and there's an argument Beautifully for that. written, beautifully drawn. So then once again, we see Johnny the Wolf pursuing somebody on the ship, but then turns out can't actually talk to her because suddenly they're attacked by sea serpents. They end up getting sucked down into the bottom of the ocean. They are confronted by Namor wearing his crown. He then sends their cruise ship with Alicia on it, rocketing home, and says, I've created a swift check current, and even now the ship holiday is speeding safely back to your shore, as all ships shall do from now on. You must tell the United Nations that I, Prince Namor, proclaim the seven seas in the skies above them as my imperial domain from this day forward. No surface man's ship or aircraft may trespass on my kingdom. He so, then, he is, so he has just claimed 70% of the Earth. Yes. And so then he shoots them home in a little rocket. They're like, we didn't know he had the technology to do this. And then he lands them safely on their own roof. Reed Richards says, I'd better address the United Nations. We then get making his second appearance this month, Nikolai Khrushchev. Wait, Nikolai, is that, wait, what's Khrushchev's first name? Uh, Mikhail? No, that's not it. Uh, I don't know. Khrushchev. Just Khrushchev. Khrushchev. 
We then see Khrushchev, <laughs> once again, as Reed Richards tries to talk to the United Nations, Khrushchev suddenly does his most characteristic action. He starts banging his shoe on the table and he says, bah, it's all a pack of capitalistic lies. No matter what the democracies say, I vote net, net, net. And so then, uh, but then we get another thing that happens for the second time this month. We get one of the Fantastic Four's villains pretending to be an old white-haired man with a bearded mustache. Yes. Because then Reed is like, someone's like, this old white-haired man is like, I will go ahead and give a speech, Reed, to the entire United Nations about the history of Atlantis. We then go ahead and see the history of Atlantis, which is just beautifully drawn and beautifully imagined. The panel at the bottom of page 16, where you have knights riding armored squids attacking castles is just amazing, just gorgeous. Even when Kirby was drawing Thor, he never really drew a spectacular Asgard. Yes, this is, that would be the ultimate expression of Kirby's design sense of Kirby's ability to create amazing, fantastic worlds would be how much he knocks himself out drawing Asgard every month once he returns to that book shortly. But we get his first sort of sense of his ability to draw truly majestic, fantastic cities here. When he shows Atlantis, he shows scientists doing work. We then review, for the first time in the modern-day Marvel universe, Prince Namor's origin. So he remembers that, oh, there was bomb testing, and they sent this princess to investigate, and she fell in love with an Earthman. She fell in love with the surface man, I guess you would say. And then they, of course, they have to get married. You can't have anybody right. having kids who's not married. And then they they get married. She is then, he is then killed. She then takes her son back down to raise him. Now, this is something that in the 1990s, the mutant books, you know, suddenly were selling millions of copies. And they were desperate to suddenly insist that every other hero was a mutant. And then somebody looked back at this issue of Fantastic Four and they're like, wait a second, they described Namor as a mutant. That's great. That means we can sell more Namor comics because they say here, however, as a result of this tragic marriage, a son was born to the grieving princess, a new breed of undersea man able to breathe both air and water. This was Prince Namor, the Submariner, possibly the first known mutant of our time. Noble, powerful, dedicated, the only true human amphibian on Earth. But if what they're saying is that, like, he actually combined both of his parents' qualities, that makes him a mutant. I'm like, no, that makes him not a mutant. Like, <laughs> what makes him a mutant is the wings on his ankles. I guess so. I guess that's his uh, one. I mean, that, that, that's what I've often heard. But then they double down on this uh, in one of the early issues of X-Men. Magneto recruits him to be part of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or tries to. That's right. So it's not like they didn't just sort of, you know, make this up on very flimsy pretenses in the 80s or 90s. It was very explicit in at least a few issues back here. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Then they review what's happened so far in the Fantastic Four comics. And then Reed Richards is like, OK, let's go and lower the boom. There's absolutely no way we're going to give Namor what he wants. We must fight him until he can threaten us no more. Well, it turns out the old guy, we're, <laughs> the old guy standing next to him, just as with Dr. Doom wearing his mask over his helmet, is Namor, who has been wearing this phony mask of this old white-haired, white-bearded guy. And then he says, so that is your answer. The surface world has had its warning. Now the time for words has passed. And Reed's like, it's the Submariner. Says, I, Prince Namor, declare war upon the human race. And one, once again, this is just more evidence of the level of mask technology that they have <laughs> in the Marvel Universe that is just so far above ours. Yes. So then I should point out, we're on page 19, and the whole war against the human race is just starting. So this yes. is a truly epic comic here. And this is so much longer than any other Lee Kirby story they've done. And uh, it's just going to keep going because this is probably this have... is probably the longest single Marvel story, like a single uninterrupted Marvel issue since probably at least the Golden Age. Yes, certainly. And maybe even longer in the Golden Age. I don't know. I guess they uh, yeah. had some pretty long comics back in the Golden Age. I, I, I think I think that that famous uh, uh, Human Torch Submariner fight issue uh, I think was a longer story than this. But I'm just saying that like since those days, I don't know if Marvel Timely Atlas had even published anything this long and epic. No, certainly not. So then we get absolutely gorgeous pages of the Atlantean army occupying New York. And they arrest all the cops. They are taking over everywhere. We then get this epic battle where they try to encase the Baxter building in concrete. Johnny breaks through. He's 
It, they, they've got these really creepy, weird-looking flying ships they have, and Johnny is torching them. They're shooting this big cannon at the first floor of the Bex building. Ben comes out and punches the cannon. They take one of the soldiers prisoner, and <laughs> the soldier says, I refuse to divulge anything except for my name, rank, and serial number. Ben <laughs> says, that's so? Well, I bet I can make you change your mind. And Reed says, no need for that, Ben. His helmet filled with water tells me all that I need to know. So apparently Atlantis is still knows the rules of the uh, of the Geneva Convention and uh, knows what the Earth forces expect when they catch her a uh, prisoner of war. Name, rank, yes. and serial number. That's the somehow that's a rule that they're that they're like, oh, we know this one. So then we just get many pages of awesome war. We get uh, bottom of page twenty-four. Namor is leading a military victory parade under the George Washington Arch, but then Reed sets off a massive hum that manages to evaporate all the water in all of the Atlanteans suits and sends them desperately running back to the sea. And it's been clear that they've taken over other cities. So presumably he then sent this technology to other cities as well. And they're doing this all over the world. So this whole massive war between the humans and the Atlanteans felt like just a massive story. It all took place between pages 19 and 24, beginning, (laughs) middle and end. And just the amount of, even in a story where they have room to spread out like this, the amount of story we're getting on every page is absolutely breathtaking. We then get a really awesome sequence of, you know, at this point, Namor just wants revenge, and he just goes up to the Fantastic Four for revenge, and we got our most visually imaginative fight we've gotten between them yet. Uh, Namor turns Reed well, for, into for, a literal all, punching well, bag. First of all, let me ask you, so right at the beginning of that sequence, when Namor comes in through the window on the bottom of page 25, what is Reed doing? <laughs> Reed looks he's like lounging. He's lounging. He looks like he's like, oh, Namor, I see you. I see. I see you got my call. <laughs> Sup? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Go on. Namor turns Reed into a literal punching bag. They are all fighting each other. And then Namor sees Sue and kidnaps her, of course. So then takes her back to his ship. <laughs> he takes her back to his ship and then he's hanging out with Lady Dorma and he's like, hey, Sue, I'm into you. Oh, hey, Lady Dorma, you can shape yourself all over me, too. And Dorma, unfortunately, quickly figures out what's going on, unfortunately for Namor. Namor then finds out, oh, the Fantastic Four are attacking again. I will leave Sue on the ship. I will go fight the Fantastic Four. More awesome fights between them and now Namor involving Namor is huge. Sea creatures. Namor, by the way, no longer seems to have his power of puffing himself up like a puffer fish. That is, uh, he is not he is not imitating sea creatures anymore. So, so let, let, there are just a couple of little details here that are a little weird that I just want to go ahead and uh, uh, not go by entirely. On page twenty seven, Namor is able to somehow knows about some kind of experimental gas jet in the wall of the Baxter building that he's able to open up in order to do some of his stuff. And I'm, he says, uh, I shall always be grateful to Richards for having built it into his lab wall. It's like, how did you know about any of this? I'm not quite sure. And then on yeah, page 20, I think that's clearly, I think that's clearly a case of Stanley trying to justify Kirby's art and going like, uh, Kirby, why would he be using a device built into Reed's wall to defeat the fantastic four <laughs> and yeah. trying, trying to, hang a hat on it and uh, but trying to make it work but failing and then on page 28 uh at the top right top right panel uh johnny is saying now if i can just remember how reed told me to whip up a flaming probing device hey that's it (laughs) it's like what once again johnny storm as green lantern yes so then, meanwhile, on the ship, Dorma has finally figured out, uh, dude, I think my fiancé, Namor, is in love with this Earth woman. And well, they've explained that Sue could be hanging out with them, even though Sue is an air breather and they're water breathers, because they said, this is a room with very moist walls. And so, <laughs> therefore, the Atlanteans can be in this room. And so then, uh, so then they, however, go like, uh, let's go ahead and make this a water room again. I'm going to bust open this porthole window and flood the room and kill off Sue Storm because she is macking on my man. And then Sue tries to save herself. She swims out into the sea now that the water is flushing it, flooding in through this porthole. She gets caught up in kelp, however, and is dying. Namor sees her, the Fantastic Four see her. They work together to save her. 
They quickly realize, we've got to get her to shore. Namor says, the only way to do that is to, in my ship, so I'm going to get my ship and go, everybody, get out. Dorma, Krang, get out. I'm going to use the ship to save Sue Storm because she is the woman I really love. He doesn't explicitly say, but he's basically saying, by the fact that he just leaves them standing there and takes off, and Dorma says, I knew it, you are in love with her. She has bewitched you, but not even a prince of the blood may betray his people like this. And he says, silence, Dorma. I claim imperial privilege as is my right. So then he leaves the Fantastic Four floating there. He leaves Dorma and Krang on the bottom of the sea. He takes off in his ship. He takes Sue Storm for the hospital. Then we cut to the Fantastic Four, finally make sure they find Sue in the hospital. And, and Sue uh, clearly has had her hair done while in the hospital. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and he says, Sue, darling, don't worry about it anymore. The important thing is that you're right. And she now is like, Reed, I have so much to make up to you for... And it's like, okay, well, suddenly she feels like she owes something to read now. I'm not sure why. And then cut to Namor out on the street. Everybody is quite angry at him because he just conquered the earth briefly. And <laughs> he then uh, he then says, back you gibbering rabble and none may lay a hand on the royal person of Prince Namor. And he takes off and he goes back to his undersea kingdom. And then he arrives and he finds out that they hate him so much that they have decided the best way to ditch him is to also ditch their entire kingdom. And his his people have ditched their own kingdom just because they don't like their king anymore. And this is their way of ghosting him, is to completely disappear. And he says, strange, everything is deserted, abandoned. Am I to be a king without a kingdom, a man without a home, more than a sea creature, yet less than human? Is there never to be a place for me on the surface or in the sea? It's a really heartbreaking ending. It certainly... Namor cannot look more heartbroken as he sort of trudges along with his head hanging low. It is an epic story and really heartbreaking and 37 pages and just a hell of a story. Oh, yeah. I mean, did they cram so... I mean, it's an epic. It, it's a. It's an absolute epic. The art is fantastic. The story is sweeping. As I said at the beginning, this, is, this issue is a feast. It is a feast. This is maybe the best Marvel comic we have read so far. It yeah, is, I, 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 arguably so, yes. The only issue we have read so far that they did feel deserved reprinting in the 80s in the special format. I just love the politics of Atlantis. I love the amount of visual imagination. Just the, you know, it is sort of a preview of the later Thor comics in terms of the amount of just the, the epic nature of the thrones, the crowns, uh, the statuary, everything about Atlantis. Yeah, you know, there's a war in this issue. It feels like a real war. Yeah. Or at least I'd say it feels like a an invasion. It feels yes. like uh, a surprise attack that succeeds in taking over our cities and, you know, stuns us momentarily. But yeah, it, it really does have that sort of feeling of reality to it, which is uh, a lot of fun. Yes. So let's quickly wrap up the rest of the issue. We get uh, pictures of uh, all of the villains they have fought so far up to issue 15, which indicates maybe where this issue should fall in continuity. We then get a quick story where they decide to retell the story from Spider-Man number one. In that story, Spider-Man attempted to join the Fantastic Four and was rebuffed. That story was penciled linked by Steve Dicko. They then decide to go ahead and redo the story, this time penciled by Jack Kirby and still inked by Dicko. Not really, again, trusting they, this is the same thing they did with Strange Tales. They don't really trust Kirby with Spider-Man. And so they have Dicko inking him when Kirby does Spider-Man. In all fairness, Kirby does Kirby does a relatively haphazard job with Spider-Man in general. Yes, but so then we get basically it's the exact same story, but just with a little more fighting. As they say, it was merely a small two-page episode, which began one of Spider-Man's greatest adventures. However, we have received countless requests asking us to redo this famous encounter, but to devote more space to it. And so they've just increased it to be six pages. So it's just a few more incidents. And you get something really interesting where you get you get Kirby imitating Dicko imitating Kirby. Dicko was trying to draw the Fantastic Four in the way Kirby was trying to draw him. And now Kirby is now redrawing that story. But he finds himself basically trying to draw the Fantastic Four in the way Dicko was drawing them. And, you know, even to the extent of this really bizarre sort of construction on the final page of when Reed expands himself to block off Ben and stop the fight. Uh, and, you know, one of the weird things about that story was Dicko was like, oh, what's Sue's thing? And I'm like, oh, Sue doesn't really have a thing. It's like, okay, I'll give her a lasso. Well, she still has the lasso in this issue. Kirby is now reasserting control, but he's like, if Dicko gave her a lasso, she gets a lasso. It's a fine, fun little story and has the exact same ending as the original. 
and we just get to see a little more fighting than we got to see last time. The rest of the issue is made up with these pinups, and and mostly the villain ones are uh, clearly cranked out in a perfunctory manner. They are not Kirby's best work or the inker's best work, whoever is inking those things. However, there are a couple of things in these uh, in these little extras here that I did want to point out. One is on the questions and answers uh, about the Fantastic Four double-page spread. On the one about Mr. Fantastic, one of the things it says is, why is Mr. Fantastic's hair white at the temples? Is he older than he looks? Answer, no. It turned white during the Second World War when he aided Allied prisoners to escape from the Nazis. Which is an interesting little thing. And I'm like... Now, if he served in World War II, he could still have gray temples. Like, you know, you yeah. wouldn't happen to have a special story of like, oh, he was frightened in the war. And so his hair turned white. Yeah, presumably he saw some, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I guess we don't uh, we don't curse on this show, but presumably he saw some shoot. He, he <laughs> like, is the idea that he saw such horrific Nazi atrocities that they turned his hair white at the temples. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a little bit weird. But then the other thing is that they have, I believe, the third cutaway view we have gotten so far of the inside of the Baxter building. Um, yes. And e- each one just is more detailed <laughs> and more spectacular. Yes, it is. And then finally, they reprint the first story from or the first half of Fantastic Four number one. And we get to the end of this issue. Oh my God, it must have been such a hard decision for kids to go like, do I want to spend more than twice as much as I would spend on a normal comic? And then they must have been so happy when they did. You know, it reminds me of when we were uh, collecting comics, there was an issue that came out that cost about three times as much as a normal comic. And it was uh, G.I. Joe number one. And, uh, you know, the first issue of G.I. Joe. And I remember just being like, dude, can I really spend as much as three comics for this issue? And, and in the end, I didn't, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but certainly, yeah, that, cause that's a, that's a big decision for a kid. If you're going to spend three times as much as a, you know, two or three times as much as a normal comic, is this going to be worth it? Uh, in this case, it absolutely was. Yes. Why not the all time great Marvel comics? All right, Steve, this has been a fantastic month of Marvel comics in a certain extent. You know, we talked about how the Kirby Apocalypse sort of marked the end of phase one of Marvel comics, the Stan and Jack to everything era. And then. I think that we could say that this month sort of ends phase two of Marvel Comics in terms of the in that next month, we're going to have such an explosion. We're going to have all these new books. We're going to have these team books. It's going to be essentially a new era, I would say, next month. We'll see if I agree with that when we actually do next month. So this is. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and, and since we don't know exactly when this issue came out, the, the Fantastic Four annual, you might be able to lump that in with that as well. And that we're just starting to get bigger, more bigger stories with more characters and tying things in more to each other and all sorts of stuff like that, starting from this point. So yeah, I can definitely see that. Okay. All right, guys. We hope you had a fun time this month, or I should say, we hope you had a fun time this episode, which may turn out to be two episodes, and we will see you soon. Yes, absolutely. And you know, once again, just when I watched the downloads for the podcast, I did notice that apparently someone in San Francisco, it looks like, probably just shotgunned the entire series up till now uh, in the last couple of days. So whoever you are in San Francisco, welcome aboard. We're happy to have you. (laughs) And uh, yes, but and to everybody out there, uh, thank you very much. And we will talk to you again next episode. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.